Welcome, Welcome to the East, to the East Dramacast. Dramacast. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Check out the awesome educational content at east.org, including our sister podcast, CareerCast. You can find East Minutes on our YouTube channel and follow all the latest news on Twitter at East underscore trauma. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Welcome to the next edition of the TraumaCast. I'm excited to take a moderator seat today with Lauren Dudas as our co-moderator. Before we start, thank you to Humanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant to support the Online Education Committee and TraumaCast. So let's get started with our TraumaCast. I'm really excited to bring this to you. Uh, my husband has a, a master's degree in computer science and he was in the military for 20 years. And he also insists that I have to change my email password as often as possible and doesn't think that the Q decade change that I do is adequate. Uh, he is excited and jealous of who I get to interview because we're going to be interviewing two international experts in cybersecurity. So let's start with introductions. Uh, Matan and Meni, go ahead and tell us who you are and how you got involved with cybersecurity. So hi, thank you for, for having me, having us uh, on the podcast. Uh, this is, uh, as, as you will learn throughout this conversation, this is a topic very, very near to us and uh, we are, we're excited. We're really excited to be a part of it. So my name is Matan Shalf. I've been doing cybersecurity for the last uh, 22, almost 23 years. Uh, started in the military, in the Army Intelligence Forces, together with many who I'm sure will share more information, more confidential information about that. And then uh, worked in the industry for many years in different capacities, both as a researcher, um, which is a nice uh, word for a hacker, uh, and also in other capacities, like in, in the academia, which uh, in which I was the one of the advisors to the interdisciplinary cyber cybersecurity research center at the Tel Aviv University, also shared that role with many who was the CTO there. So just just really been doing cybersecurity for for the majority of my life, and uh, specifically interested in fields having to do with the connection between the computer systems that we were talking about and people. So the topic of medicine and cybersecurity, of course, is very, very critical in that sense. Hi, many here. I had a similar, I think, life, professional life to what uh, Matan described. I started in the military as well. Uh, spent seven years um, in the, I was in my last position there. I was the CISO of the um, uh, technological side of the intelligence services. After that, I spent 10 years in the largest banking group in Israel. Uh, in my last position there, I was head of the IT of the department for the bank and its subsidiaries all over the world. Today, I do mainly two things. Number one, I'm the CTO of the Interdisciplinary Cyber Research Center at the Tel Aviv University. The second thing is I'm a partner at a company called Cytactic. And what we do there is cyber crisis management. We help companies all over the world to deal with cyber incidents the moment they happen. Great. And Lauren, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, Lauren Dudas. I'm an acute care surgeon in West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. 
Great. So let's talk about how we got to this topic. When the pandemic started, a WhatsApp chat group started with a couple hundred acute care surgeons and critical care providers. The chat has since evolved to cover a range of topics. And a few months ago, cybersecurity came up. I suggested on the chat that this could be a good trauma cast. And Matan's father-in-law, who's on the chat, he reached out to me through Gmail to connect me with Matan. Matan, Lauren, and I emailed on our individual platforms, and then we connected with many. So five or six different platforms were utilized to bring this trauma cast to fruition. Um, it just seems like that's fraught with disaster. If, if, if our listeners could see the Zoom call, both Manny and Matan have got this look on their face that we could all be hacked on so many different fronts. Um, but in reality, we're dependent upon electronic communication. I mean, I think if we tried to handwrite each other letters, this never would have, would have come to be. And the final platform is that we're on Zoom, right, which has become kind of ubiquitous in everyone's house as a way to communicate uh, with video. Um, so let me start with a basic question. How would you guys um, ex- describe or explain to a novice, like, what is cybersecurity? Cybersecurity. I actually wrote a paper on what is cybersecurity and the difference between cybersecurity and information security. It was published on Isaka. So I'll give you a quick explanation. Cybersecurity is the sum of efforts that we invest in order to prevent cyber threats or mitigate cyber threats. And the question is, so what are cyber threats? Well, cyber threats are a group of threats that include causing damage or damages uh, of various types through manipulating IT and systems and computers. And I'm giving this broad definition because the cybersecurity threat group contains many, many different uh, types of attacks, many different scenarios, many different techniques. Mainly, we can divide them to two subgroups. So those are crimes that are being done against computers and crimes that are being done through computers. And and maybe I'm not choosing the exact right words to describe those two groups, but basically what I'm trying to say is that um, there are traditional crimes that you can either do in person or by using computers. If you threat someone that you will kill them, you can either do it in person or send them an email or do some, use computers in order to maintain your... Uh, anonymity while conducting the crime. Uh, and there are crimes that you actually, what the thing that you're attacking are computers, are hacking systems, stealing data, and so on and so forth. So I hope this answered your question. Like if the computer is the channel or if the computer is the target. Exactly. I'd like to offer a slightly different perspective on the definition. You're not allowed to. Do that. No, so I won't. You wrote a paper on this. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. I'll just... Uh, no, not, not not to disagree with many because it's 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 very it's very easy to understand who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> someone knows what they're talking about, someone doesn't, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. The ambiguity of who's who. <laughs> no, no, really, just just to just to add to what many said, I think that way in the beginning of this whole like cyber trend, let's call it, I think it was a lot of people defined cyber as a dimension. The question around securing that dimension had to do with the way that it was manifested. So, for example, the classic examples would be that before, you know, a phone used to be a phone. Phone used to be something you used to dial and, you know, reach to someone, have a conversation and end it. But once, you know, 2.5G, 3G, 4G, and so on, once that became a reality and phones became computers, then all of a sudden you could hack someone's phone. You could record their messages, you could turn on their camera, you could do lots of things with that device that you couldn't do before because it wasn't connected to the internet. Same thing with medical appliances, right? An MRI used to just be an MRI. 
And now it's also connected. So there's another dimension to it through which I can interact with it. It has lots of benefits. It allows, for example, for physicians to be able to share data uh, very efficiently and, and, and use you know, colleagues to, uh, for a consultation. But that channel is also open for other maybe less uh, desired visitors. And in that respect, that's an additional dimension to something that existed before. So why do people hack? I mean, you talked about you know, access, ways they can access, but what's the, the purpose? So I would divide it to three major groups. Uh, as I, I defined myself, for example, as a hacker, uh, but obviously I don't hack systems with the intent, with like malicious intent. On the contrary, I hack systems with the intent of improving them and making them more robust against attacks. So I would say that there are three separate groups uh, that deal with hacking at large. The first would be states. Uh, so anything that has to do with state level, you know, cybersecurity, uh, cyber warfare, espionage, you know, any any sort of need that a state might have that it can uh, execute through cyber means. So that would be one type of actor. The second type of actor is researchers, uh, people like many and myself, people who are genuinely interested in making systems more secure. And we understand that one of the ways to do it, it's not the only one but way, but one of the ways to do it, a very efficient way to do it, is to actually go and hack them. Because when you hack them, you learn what's wrong with them, and then you can also give that perspective to the people who are trying to secure the systems. So that, I would put that as the second group. And the third, and I, I don't have statistics, so I can't give you exact numbers, but in my gut feeling, I would say the largest group are cyber criminals, which are the same entities that many was describing before of criminals trying to commit crime for probably usually for, for monetary gain and are just able to either be more efficient or be less susceptible to being caught or any other myriad of reasons of why people choose to perpetrate crimes through the cyberspace. Uh, but there are many reasons why you would want to do that. Uh, and they do it simply for monetary gain. So I would put these three groups and those motivations. So tell me this, why hospitals though, right? I could see, you know, you want to attack somebody and, and they, I don't know, send me some scary email with a file that says, give me all your money, right? It's like a stick up. But the hospital system just seems so huge and public and it's a pain in the butt to do it. Like why go after hospitals, especially when it's not just, you know, monetary gains that are on the line, but it's, you know, human lives and people's health and, and the destruction that can happen is a lot more than just stick them up. I want your money. So from, you know, from an attacker's perspective, there are many reasons why you would choose a hospital over other systems. But, but maybe I'll take a step back and say a lot, of the, a lot of the attacks we see on hospitals are actually not attacks on hospitals. They are general attacks that happen to also attack resources, computers that happen to be in hospitals. Uh, I think Mirai was the perfect example. Mirai was a, was a malware that targeted Windows computers. And it just so happened that some of the computers that it hit were in hospitals, you know, machines that were controlling uh, different types of equipment for, for uh, blood tests and things like that. So, so, so some of the attacks we see, they're not targeted against hospitals. It's just that hospitals are now a part of the internet and that comes with that burden. Why, why target hospitals? There are many reasons. One, they're organizations that are fairly easy to attack especially anything that has to do with physical access, which is one of the more favorite uh, methods of attack for hackers. It's not so easy to walk into a bank and to find a computer that you can connect to, 
On the other hand, hospitals are literally built for that, for people to come in and be able to interact with, with the systems directly. So, so the, there's, there's that. Uh, hospitals tend to have legacy systems and tend to have um, uh, older infrastructure in terms of IT, which means that they're more susceptible to attacks. So it's easier for hackers to attack them. And, and, and as, a, as an attack target, uh, it's a very lucrative target because of the reason that you mentioned, where in a bank, if someone hacked a bank or, or, or some kind of an office, uh, you know, and tried to run a ransomware attack where, you know, they encrypt your hard drive and they say, pay us money or you won't, give, you won't get your data back. In a hospital, it's, it's really about human life. So the motivation to pay, I think, is much higher. What would you say? <clears throat> I would absolutely agree. Um, I think there was an interesting debate in the crime world during COVID-19 era uh, where would the hackers attack hospitals or not? Now, some of the known, well, well-known hacking groups uh, specifically said, we're not going to attack hospitals. We understand that right now um, we have human lives on that. We only want to make money. We don't want to kill people. <clears throat> So we're not going to attack hospitals. And for a while there, it seems like it's not going to happen. So they're not going to attack hospitals. But then what we actually saw is that the, the hospitals experienced huge amount of cyber incidents during the COVID-19 era. And so, so while some criminals didn't want to attack hospitals, many did. And they, they leveraged the fact that hospitals right now are under a lot of stress. They cannot allow themselves um, downtime and the government would support any hospital that experienced cyber attack in order to bring it to uh, back to business as, as soon as possible. This made a great incentive for them to attack hospitals because the moment the hospitals got attacked, they didn't have the time to negotiate, to ask questions, to try to revive their computers alone. They just paid immediately. It's, inter- it's an interesting question. If you had to guess, what would you say cost more on the dark net, a credit card or a health record? Well, if you had to guess. Credit card's where you get your money. So usually the health record will cost 10 times more than the credit card. And there are various reasons to why this is. You can use health record for various things like insurance fraud, to be able to buy medicine that otherwise you wouldn't be able to buy, to sometimes threat people to expose their secrets. And it's much easier to cancel a credit card than it is to cancel a health record. So if you if you bought a credit card, usually in a very short time, credit card um, uh, supplier will identify that this was stolen and will cancel the, the card. But with health broker, the moment you have it, this is it, you have it. I am curious, well-known groups have made statements about not having hospitals. How are people having these conversations? Like if, if we know who the well-known groups are, why can't the good guys just go get the bad guys? I'm going to just lay out some ground rules that anybody hacking a hospital who wants a bunch of money and is putting patients' life at risk, we're just going to globally call them the bad guys. So what can the hospitals do to prevent this attack? So I, I totally agree with your definition, by the way. There's no gray zone when it comes to these sort of things. There's no question at all about who's good and who's bad in that situation. I, I would tell you that, at, at least from, I think I can speak for both of us, uh, from our experience, you, you can't stop attacks. You can't prevent attacks completely. Uh, I think a good analogy would be the, the body's immune system. 
it's it's highly effective against certain threats it's completely useless against other threats and everything else kind of falls in the middle where depending on how you're good or how healthy you are in general you'll probably cope with the different pathogens you know more efficiently than others maybe that's the strategy also so if you as a hospital invest the time and energy to improve your own health to improve your own i, I mean i mean it wise you know cyber we call it cyber hygiene then you could be healthier than another hospital and and the one thing to understand about the way these hacking groups work is that they follow the the path of the least resistance so if you're a target that's harder to attack they'll just go and attack someone else so the best thing to do if you want to cope with the attacks is to adopt good practices good day-to-day practices around your IT systems and the way that you educate your personnel which i think this activity right now is uh, contributing in that that aspect yeah i want to build on what dan said there are there are obviously so many things you can do to improve your security but but there are several there are several things that you should take into consideration number one the basic rule of cybersecurity is that everything is hackable um, it doesn't matter how much money um, you would invest in time and how many tools you will buy given enough time and and resources hackers will be able to hack you and what we've seen in the past two years is that some of the largest security vendors of the world got hacked like Microsoft like fireeye right so everything is hackable it doesn't matter it doesn't mean that you um, shouldn't invest in prevention you should invest in prevention because with prevention preventative controls you are able to stop 99.9 percent of the attacks but this is not enough you should also invest in detection you should have the ability to detect those attacks that you didn't stop because um, usually those attacks that you didn't stop are the most dangerous ones and then you have the ability to respond if you know how to do those three things to prevent most of the attacks to detect those attacks that you didn't stop and respond effectively, then you are considered to be secure in today's world. And let me tell you something. Most organizations are very good with prevention. Prevention is easy. Most of the security tools that we have are preventative tools. So a lot of people invest in that. Not many organizations, especially in the health sector, are good with detection. And most of them are terrible with prevention, with a response. And... Uh, response is such an important aspect um, of the entire ecosystem. It's not by chance that what I do today is cyber crisis response, uh, um, cyber crisis management, because there is a huge gap in this world. There is a huge difference between organizations that know how to handle an incident the moment it happened compared to those organizations that don't know what to do the moment um, an incident happened. I'm going to make a little of an assumption, but I think most of our listeners are not going to be involved in the institution uh, IT department. But what are some things we can do that would um, decrease, like as a as a person, um, weaknesses in my system? Yeah, I, so I think I'll say something that I don't think will be very popular uh, among your listeners, but but it is what I think is the truth. The, fr- the the biggest thing you each and every one of you guys listening to us can do is support your IT department. Many and I have had the chance to work on many projects over the years. And I think um, one of the more interesting one was uh, an academic institute that we were working with, uh, also helping them protect their network against attacks. And and academic institutes are very, very much like hospitals in many ways. Uh, One of the ways that they're very similar is that they have staff, they have professors. And the professors don't like it when the IT department comes in and tells them, you know, 
you can't go out to these websites, you can't take your computer home, you can't do this, you can't do that. So they just don't listen to them. And the IT department ends up being, you know, uh, having to do their job with one hand tied behind their back. And, and it's really hard. So I would say the first thing is to support your IT department. They're, what they're doing is designed to protect you. So, you know, support them, listen to them, and, and really do anything you can to help them do their job. Uh, I, I think that would be like the one thing that each and every one of your listeners can actually do right now. Other than that, you know, we, we have cyber, cyber hygiene practices, which we think should not interfere with your day-to-day work, but still improve the situation. So your basic things like, you know, always locking your computer when you leave the room, um, not sharing passwords with other people, not reusing passwords on different, uh, different systems. So, so I'm sure these are things that you guys receive tips on a regular basis. It's just that these are the sort of tips that people tend to, uh, I guess, uh, ignore over time. But they are important. They do make a big difference. But if I use the same password as last time, but I add a one at the end, that's okay, right? Yeah, yeah, perfect. That's, that's, all, <laughs> that's all you need to do. All right, many, I'm going to throw a scenario at you. On my work email, I get a legitimate looking email from a fertility clinic that has a, an accurate address within our town. Um, and there's a survey attached and they, they're just doing a survey on fertility and want responses. And so I click on the attachment and it looks unusual. And I'm like, uh, something's wrong. And then things aren't working quite right on my computer. What do I do? Is the IT department going to hunt me down? And I am the typhoid Mary of IT. So that's a very good question. And it's a very good question because many, many of the attack cases that you see around the world starts exactly like that. You, as a user inside your network, has an asset that the criminals want. And this is your permissions, your ability to control your systems. The hackers don't have that. They sit outside of your network and they want you to let them in. And how do they do that? Usually they would send you something and they would ask you to open it, to run it, to install it. With your permissions, with your ability to install things on your computers, you would do that and by doing that, you will let them in. You will open uh, the ability to, for the hackers to go inside your computers and then from there, move inside your network, find the servers, steal the information, lock everything, right? So a lot of uh, those scenarios outside that actually during this weekend, we spent the entire weekend in a health, a big health organization that were hacked ex- almost exactly like that. And they experienced uh, a ransomware and that was a fascinating case because the technical aspects of the attack, like dealing with the virus, uh, decrypting the computers, were only a small part of the entire crisis. Some of the questions were, and that were amazing questions. Now that you know that you had a hacker inside your network, can you trust your data? Can you trust your health data? Can you treat people where you cannot 100% validate that the data that you're using, that you're reading, is exactly the data that you used to have? How do you go back to treating people in this scenario? Um, the third parties that work with this health, health organization decided that they don't want us to continue on working with them because they were afraid that the virus will come from their network to their network. So suddenly all of your interfaces, all of your partners, all of your service providers disconnect themselves from your network. So you cannot uh, take money from people. You cannot pay for anyone. Um, you cannot get lab results. You cannot send lab results. Suddenly, um, you're in a problem, you're in trust problem. And those questions on how 
you manage uh, a health organization under crisis are amazingly interesting. And usually health companies only discover those types of dilemmas only after they were attacked. And everything started with you receiving this email and clicking on something. So what you should do if you see, if you receive an email from someone you don't know um, or something that you're not 100% sure, what I would encourage you to do is always ask. Asking is always the best approach. Ask your security people. Send them the email. Say, I don't know what it is. I don't feel comfortable clicking on it. Is it okay? Or if you already click on it and then you felt something is not exactly right, something happened, immediately you don't touch anything, you don't touch your computers, you don't do anything, immediately you notify your security people telling them, you know what, something happened. You should check that. And then wait for their response. But make them, like, make them understand that this might be urgent. Always ask, ask, ask. I, I just want to chime in on that last point because I think what many said is critical to your question. The, the most important thing is the, the fact that you let the IT department know what happened. The, the faster they know, the more efficiently they can resolve it, the fewer computers will be affected, uh, and the chances of the organization to survive the attack are much, much, much higher. And again, the, the analogies here to your field are, are almost uh, are almost clear cut, right? The person that's suffering for something should immediately seek you know, medical help. So it's, it's the same story. And yes, you're right. There's that question of, okay, well, are they going to hunt me down? Are they going to do something to me? And, and of course, you know, there's that element, but, but at the same time, it's, you, you, can't, you can't hide it. And the faster you tell them, the, the sooner they learn about it, the, the, the better the organization's going to be. Let's say Carrie, as the irresponsible person she is, <laughs> lets that person in. And then they're able to be undetected and get through the system. Describe how the hacking situation would unroll and how that would kind of impact us as physicians. Who do they contact for the money or how would it get resolved? How would it impact my day-to-day life? So there are various types of attacks and various types of incentives, as we talked about before and Matan mentioned. Um, so let's take one of them, which is the cyber attack with the best PR right now, which is ransomware. Let's assume that your organization is attacked with a ransomware. So the, the, the way it would work, generally speaking, the steps is that first, the organization, the hackers will collect intelligence about your company and their hospital. There are many ways to do that. And when they will feel that they have sufficient intelligence, they will try to infiltrate the network. And usually they will do that, not 100% of the times. There are various ways to do that, but usually they will send something in to someone and they will hope that this person will click it and install something on their computer. Now, it's not just that they're like doing cold emails in the sense that they send the email and they hope someone will click it. Sometimes they build relationships. So when a company, in the past, when a company asked Matan myself to prove that we can hack them, one of the things that we would do is that we would build a website that looks like a legitimate website. And we would start sending like spam emails, news about the company. We will choose a name for the company that sounds legitimate, like micro-information. Micro-information sounds like something, or micro-technology sounds like a real company. I don't know, maybe there is a company. Yeah, there might be a company. Yeah, I don't know. But but yeah, but you create like something, like a name, like a fake name that sounds legitimate. 
And then you start sending a spam to people. We are like, not hackers.com. <laughs> yeah, we're not hackers. So you start sending spams like uh, micro technologies, whatever, just purchase this company for $500 million. Micro technologies is working with Microsoft on this. And the goal of the spam is to be annoying enough so people will notice it and delete it. But it would make them think that micro technologies is real companies. So we build a trust, we build reputation for micro technologies, even though it's a totally fake company. And then we would approach them with a fake identity from, I don't know, the CEO of microtechnologies or the head of sales or something telling them that we received their contacts from their friend and we have something to offer, a new product, a new process. And we will send them uh, um, a PowerPoint. They will, again, they will have questions that we will do a quick Zoom maybe or whatever. And the moment we build the trust, we will tell them we have something to send you. It might be um, your security uh, solutions might not let it through. I don't know. It happened with like 20 other customers. So it might happen. I will try to send it to you, but if it's not arriving, it might be your security solution. And you send it and it's not, it's locked. So you um, tell them, okay, I have a way, I have a way for you to install it. And then you explain to them how they should access the software and install it. And from that moment on, you have access, you start to learn the network, um, you find the servers, you, you put your hands on the data, you steal the data, you lock the servers, and then you send the message. And it's very important to understand. Sometimes it would take like 200, 300 days from the moment you started the attack till the moment the organization was uh, identified that there is an attack. So those are long cycles. This is not like somebody decided yesterday and stopped today. It's like through, through a year, stealing all of your information, locking all of those systems. This is a long, a long process. And I'm surprised that we didn't talk up until now about the case that happened in Germany. Mm-hmm. This is a fascinating, this is a fascinating case. Maybe we should touch it in a second. You can talk. No, gosh, it. don't stop. What happened in Germany? Go ahead. So let me tell you briefly about the story in Germany, which is a fascinating story. One of the most interesting stories of the past two years. It has so many things that we can learn out of it. So what happened is that it happened in the Düsseldorf hospital. So there was this, this old lady. She had a medical situation. She called the ambulance. The ambulance was on the way to the hospital. And the ambulance called the hospital, telling them, I have this lady. She has this situation. We're on our way. Make make sure everything is ready. And the hospital said, well, you cannot come. We have ransomware attack. We cannot get new patients. You should go to another hospital. Um, And they send them to another hospital in Germany called Helius Hospital. The distance between those two hospitals are 32 kilometers, something like that. And um, because of that, her treatment was delayed with 1.5 hours, one and a half hours. And she died um, a short time after she arrived at the second hospital. This was an interesting case in the sense that people ask, is this the first time where a computer virus actually killed someone? The discussion about, uh, around this question was amazing. In the sense that the prosecutors said that if they will be able to prove that the virus actually killed this lady or she died or the virus uh, somehow contributed to the fact that she died, they will be able to charge the hackers with negligent homicide. They also said that they don't need to prove that the virus actually killed her. Maybe everybody agrees that she would probably have died anyway, even if she arrived at the first hospital, but it is enough to prove that the virus killed her one hour, two hours earlier, compared to the time that she would have died, to be able to charge the hackers with negligent homicide. Another thing that they said is that if they would be able to prove that, 
they would probably also have to take some legal actions against the hospital staff. So suddenly the hospital security people, the hospital IT, the hospital manager might be charged because their lack of security, the fact that they didn't have sufficient security, contributed to the fact that this lady died. And this is very, very interesting. And it changes the entire relationship or the entire way CISOs, security officers, um, perceive their role and their responsibility. They concluded that the ransomware did not affect this lady's death, but it's not because the ransomware didn't affect, it's because they didn't have what they said, we didn't have the legal tools to prove that. But it is clear um, that, this is, that this is an interesting scenario and people will die or already die because of cyber attacks on hospitals. But just because you get hacked doesn't mean that you don't have enough security necessarily, right? I mean, there are going to be hackers that are going to get in regardless. Absolutely. Absolutely. You listen. Everything is hackable, <laughs> right? I'm not an expert on the legal side. I think many has much more experience in that side than me. But there is a, there's a burden on any organization, doesn't matter if it's a hospital, a bank, or, or any other organization, to prove that they took the appropriate measures to act like what, what a, a reasonable organization would do. And if they can show that they didn't follow what's considered common practice, then they're exposed to claims of negligence. So I have a question about kind of personal security. So in medicine, we often talk about how textbooks are already outdated by the time they're published. And if you want the most recent stuff, you're going to dig into a journal and get new literature. Is that the same for spyware that I might try to, or an antivirus program I might try to install on my own computer? Are there some that are better or worse? Or am I really just trying to not be the most accessible person so that they'll pass by and go to someone who's easier to hack? That's a, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, we, we can't speak to specific uh, products or, or companies. I would say that, uh, yeah, I mean, like for, for you as a personal person, like in your own home or, or on your own computer, there are like the basic things that you should make sure to do, uh, which obviously no one ever does. But, you know, it's like installing the latest software updates. You know, if, let's say if it's a Microsoft system, then, you know, running Microsoft Update uh, and having it install updates automatically, updating your antivirus software and things like that, that you wouldn't believe how much they improve the situation. In the world of hacking, it's counterintuitive, but actually there's not a lot of innovation happening there. And if you look at the viruses or, or the malware that is affecting computers, a lot of times you're talking about really, really old malware exploiting uh, exploits that have been known and fixed for years. I'm talking like four, five, six years exploits that were found in certain software where the vendor already fixed it, already issued uh, an update that anyone can download and, and install and then they wouldn't be vulnerable to that attack. And still, the, the, the malware we see out there today is using exploits from eight years ago sometimes, nine years ago. And that's especially true for what we call the Internet of Things, you know, the, uh, everything we're talking about here, connected devices, so medical equipment and things of that nature, where the, the manufacturer that built the systems and had them connected to the Internet used whatever they had at the time, and then no one ever installs updates on them. Right. So never mind your personal computer at home, you know, think of uh, your lab computer. How often does that get updates? So it's actually critical 
I would even put it as the most critical thing, I think, you know, to have your systems always up to date with the latest software, security patches and so on. And it, and you can set it to run automatically. It doesn't, you know, you don't need to do anything to get it up and running and working. The only thing you need to do is restart your browser, restart your computer when it tells you that it needs to. And I'm sure 99% of your listeners now are smiling, thinking, oh, yeah, I have that message open on my computer right this second <laughs> telling me. Right before the Zoom call, I put another four hours on it. And exactly. I'm like, I just hit the snooze button until it won't let me hit the exactly. snooze button anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and I, in a sense, it's not your fault, right? You're, you're acting normally, you're acting the way, you know, that is the most convenient for you. But if you look at it at the macro level, then that's, that's what's allowing a lot of these attacks to actually happen successfully. We're, we're, still, we're still dealing with, with attacks, you know, malware from eight, nine years ago. Maybe I can share with you one thing uh, that I think you might find interesting. We are a part of a hacker group in Israel. But again, when I say hackers, I talk about the researchers, what we call the white hackers. Uh, so we're, we're a part of a group called the Red Team. Um, and, and this group is a group of uh, Israeli uh, researchers, hackers that are doing volunteer work to help organizations deal with the cyber threats and doing it for many years now here in Israel. And one of the activities we did 10 years ago almost was uh, we were approached by one of the hospitals here in Israel. Uh, and uh, it was the, the manager of the IT department, the manager of the security and the CEO of the hospital that came to us and said, listen, we're very much concerned about what we're hearing. We want to know if our systems can be hacked. What, what can you guys do? And we said, you know, we, we don't know, but we can, you know, we can try and do something. We can uh, define a few targets and present them to you and ask for your permission if we can do something about it. And, and long, long story short, we came back to them showing them that we can access any blood test results anywhere in, in Israel. We can access any medical file anywhere. We can access medical systems and, and equipment and shut them down. We didn't shut them down, of course, but we, we showed them that. We brought it all the way to the point where if we clicked OK, then it would shut down. Basically, we showed them that there are no systems that are protected in any ways in the hospital. And needless to say, that that triggered a big, big response. And we, of, co of course, we helped them deal with the problems. We sat with them. We showed them how to fix some of them and gave them advice, things that we've also discussed in this call about cyber hygiene, locking your computers, installing updates, et cetera, et cetera. But that was, to my knowledge, at least at the time, the first time that a hospital actually allowed uh, white hackers, researchers to come in and do this sort of activity. And in my, of course, I'm biased, but in my personal opinion, I think that they, they gained a lot from doing that. And I would encourage any organization that has the capacity and the courage to invite people and specifically in our case, we did it as a volunteer group, but of course there are, there, are, there are also commercial services that allow organizations to run these sort of campaigns where they stimulate an attack. And I think that that's one of the, one of, not the only, but one of the best tools to really know where you're exposed and how to deal with attacks that would happen in a real life scenario and not just theoretically. This is a question circling back just because I'm so intrigued by all of this, but so how does ransom get paid? Maybe first, should they pay? Yeah, in, in many cases, you're not allowed to pay because of, uh, uh, of at least uh, anti-money laundering and uh, the fact that you're not allowed to pay terrorists. 
But if you decide to pay and you are allowed to pay, usually you, you would pay with uh, Bitcoins. It's like cash money you can send over the internet. Um, and you would send it and receive it much like you send and receive emails. What you would normally see is in a scenario where there's a ransomware attack, you will get some kind of a message either on your screen or in an email or whatever, usually saying something along the lines of we were able to compromise your systems, for perhaps even showing you some kind of proof, you know, by attaching a file from your internal database or something like that, that, that you know that there was no way someone had access to that from outside the organization other than through a hack. And then they will just give you a number, a number of an account, a Bitcoin account that you need to transfer the funds to. At that point begins the interesting question of how do you negotiate? How much you actually pay? Will they actually release you from the ransomware after you paid? What would you do if they don't? So these are lots of good questions that uh, I'm sure many has smart yeah, things we, to say about. We, in, in one of the incidents that I talked about where we managed the crisis, we were able to negotiate the price down from $1 million in Bitcoins to $100,000. Yeah. So if you're doing, if you know what you're doing, you, this could be a significant change in the outcome of the crisis. Maybe just one last thing to add, and you can sure. one of the one of the best tools because, as you mentioned, you know, passwords are are very are a very difficult tool for users, right? Add a number, change the number, all these things that everyone's doing, making them kind of uh, redundant almost. But there is one tool that we strongly recommend people use. Both personally, like in your with your own like Gmail or whatever whatever account uh, system you have, um, and also in, in in the workplace, if in your case in a hospital, which is called multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication is a very very straightforward way to secure your account in the sense where even if if you had two-factor authentication enabled and you gave me your password, you told me here this is my password. I still couldn't access your account. What happens in a multi-factor authentication scenario is that you log into your account, you type in your username and your password, and then the service prompts you for a one-time code. Usually it sends it over a text message, sometimes over an email. Sometimes you can use uh, dedicated apps that generate codes. There, there are different ways to implement it. And, and again, your IT department, I'm sure, has done it for more than one system. But this is one of the best practices to use, again, also for yourself at home. Uh, I would urge you, any account you have, if it's your you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, Gmail, whatever account you have, they all allow you to secure your account with two-factor authentication. And I would urge you to do that. What about saving all your passwords right in your iPhone? Well, actually, I mean, that's another good tip. Uh, I would use password managers wherever possible. Um, like personally myself, I, I only use password managers if it's on my browser or on my computer and my, my, my phone. I don't know the passwords to any of the services that I use. Like legitimately, I, I don't know the passwords. I have no idea what the passwords are. And if I don't know them, the chances that a hacker knows them are even smaller unless they hack the password manager. And then, yeah, and that happens. And that happens. It happens. But yeah. yeah. But let's say I think most people should feel more comfortable in the hands of password managers than in their own hands. 
in terms of the security I would, level. I would, yeah, I would agree using Passport Manager. The only thing that I would say that your really, really sensitive passports don't stay there. Like the, the, the number one most sensitive password that you have is your email password. Because if I have access to your email, I can reset all of your other passwords. Your email password should be hard and you should only remember it by heart. You shouldn't write it or give it to anyone. Okay. Both pets plus my kid's birthday. Got it. There, there is a <laughs> saying that passwords are a great way to remember birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. These are really awesome tips because uh, even though it might seem simple to you guys, I would have thought that there's new stuff going on and being in- invented for hacking all the time and that I would never have thought my email was the most important password for sure. Thanks guys for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, we really you. enjoyed it. And every time you give me an excuse to meet Matan, I owe you. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer, and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, Remember, all you need to do is look to the east.